Hey there, welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and eFish and Forage Market. They help bring this podcast to life every month. Today, we are going to talk about small batch canning, but we're going to talk about a lot more than just small batch canning because my guest today is none other than Marissa McClellan. Marissa McClellan runs the website Food in Jars, and she may well be the best canning person I know. She has been doing canning and not a lot more than canning in terms of her professional job for the last, I don't know, 12, 13, 15 years or so. So she has become quite the expert. And one of the things that she's very, very good at is small batch canning. And and I'm talking about small batches in the sense of less than a gallon, And even as little as a half a pint, it is a way to put up and preserve the little bits of things that you happen to have lying around. Or if you're a gatherer and a forager, things that you have gathered just, well, not that much of. You can also use it to make really, really amazing, you know, fillips and garnishes and delicacies, things that you don't necessarily need a gallon of. So there's a little bit to learn in terms of pulling off a small batch. And uh, Marissa is the best person I know of to talk with. So here we go. Hey, Marissa McClellan, thank you for coming on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. It's it's been a minute, hasn't it? Long time. I'm so glad to be here talking to you. But I know I feel like it's been years since I've seen you in the flesh. I think yeah, I think you are correct. I mean, the (laughs) one the one time I remember distinctly is we had a great conversation about canning. Uh, I think it was a blog her conference, and you were leading. You were leading, I think, a, a canning yeah. class or seminar. Yeah. Oh, my God. That blog her was a decade or more ago. Like, that's I think a it long was. time ago. Yeah. And then there was there was some IACPs there along the way. But, yeah, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. I've always kept an eye on you because um, if, you, if you, everyone out there doesn't know, Marissa runs Food in Jars, which, uh, in my opinion, is among, if not the best, canning websites out there. And she's always been kind of the doyen of canning. Um, <laughs> like I do it and and I do some stuff and, and we're going to get into it because Marissa doesn't necessarily smile on all of the things that I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if you're looking for good, solid, like legit information that won't kill you, um, Food in Jars is uh, is definitely a place to start. Well, thanks. Yeah. You know, my goal is to make sure that people don't kill themselves like that. That's the uh, the number one goal. Safety first. Right. And, and, you know, I come from a, a land where safety third. <laughs> well, you know, you no, know it's in the top three. Yeah, it's not, it's in there. It's in there. That's important. Yes. So you have, I, I can't remember how many books. I, I know you have at least three, right? Yeah. Four actually. Four. I, um, okay. Yeah. I had one come out in 2019 that was uh, not so canning focused as focused on what to do with your canning. Um, that one was called, uh, the food and jars kitchen. And it was all about how to use up what you've preserved because I really found that, you know, I had written these three books about canning and had all these recipes on my website and people would look at me in classes and events and say, well, this is great, but how do I use it? And so, you know, I felt like I had to close the loop and give people um, some really good instruction on some ideas of how to use things up. So that's, that was that book. What to do with your 17 gallons of canned peaches. Exactly. Or, you know, <laughs> 93 jars of jam because you got a little carried away in the middle of August. Everyone does that, especially when they're beginning. Yeah, it's it's true. Well, because jam, it's fairly um, accessible and it's 
typically no more than like two or three ingredients, maybe four if you're really going crazy. And and it's delicious because most people like jam. So it feels like a really, a really good um, starting point. But then you, you know, you realize you've done a gross of jars and you're like, huh, that's a lot of jam. That's that might be good for a decade. Everyone's getting jam. That's right. That's right. I, I want to talk about small batch canning kind of yeah. as the focus of today. But I think we're probably going to go off on any number of canning tangents because <laughs> both of us are are kind of canning geeks and have really interesting stories and 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 processes that we that we go through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we actually get into small batch canning, I want to start with just one conversation that I've always wanted to have with you. Okay. Uh, and this is about old canned food. Okay. It's a question I get a lot and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, and I don't know if I'm actually giving correct or, uh, instructions for, uh, all the time because I've had, I've opened up, for example, jam that's four years old. It's been sitting in the pantry for four years and it seems to be fine. And I don't know what the outer edge is on properly canned goods and, and does it matter and does it change versus you know, jams versus pickled things or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a question I can definitely answer. So um, the first thing to remember is that there's no like expiration date where, you know, on this day you've crossed a line and suddenly everything is bad. Um, but the thing to remember is home canned foods, particularly if you're storing it where light can get to it or um, in a place where temperature is fluctuating, the quality is going to decline over time. So um, that's the, those are the things to keep in mind. So quality is going to decline over time and storage conditions matter, but there's no like drop dead date or anything like that. But um, things just aren't as good typically, like it's not going to be quite as delicious four or five years down the line as it was when it started. Is it going to be dangerous or kill you? Probably not. So my, um, my kind of like checklist that I run when I approach a jar that's like four or five or six years old, because certainly I've got those in my collection, um, you know, because when I develop recipes, I tend to hold on to them for a while, you know, at least one jar of things I've developed to see how it ages to, so that P I can tell people, well, I, in my experience, I found that this was still good after three years, but after the fourth year, the, you know, it's separated or the quality declined um, to a point where I didn't want to eat it anymore. So I, you know, if a jar is pretty old that I'm pulling off the shelf, I think, okay, first off, I look at it, a visual inspection. How does it look? Does it, has it faded or has it darkened? Um, is the texture different than it was when I first put it into the jar? So like, has it separated or has it solidified in a way that um, it wasn't in the first two years of its existence? So, you know, but if everything kind of looks okay, maybe it's faded a little bit. And certainly another thing to remember is that the lower the amount of sugar that's in a preserve or um, if you've used a less refined sweetener like honey or maple or um, coconut sugar, those things don't hold quality as long. So um, some fading will occur if you've used uh, a less processed sweetener or a non-sugar sweetener. Um, that And fading doesn't necessarily mean spoilage. It just means, okay, this the color's not as vivid. Maybe the flavor won't be as vivid anymore either. But so as long as it doesn't look 
radically altered from its origins. I'm like, okay, this is probably safe to eat. Then I check the seal. Is the seal still good? Is it wiggling in a disturbing way? Then that's a jar that's just going to get dumped and washed and reused. Has that ever happened to you where it's like, yes, four years later, you're like, let's check this. Oh, yes, it has. (laughs) Um, For a while, I had a small stash of of things under one of my couches because that was the available space because I live in an apartment and um, I forgot about it. And I pulled it out one day and I was like, huh, this, this, this is not sealed anymore. (laughs) And so, you know, I went right to the garbage disposal and got rid of the contents and washed the jar and chalked it up to, you know, life and a learning experience. Did you have like an ecosystem in the jar or did it look otherwise normal? It looked otherwise normal, but I, you you just don't know at that point. You don't know how long it has been without a vacuum and it's just not worth the risk. Like it wouldn't have killed me because it's a high acid preserve. And maybe we need to let, after I get through this, let's backtrack to high acid and low acid preserves just to give us a refresher on what can give you a stomach ache and what could um, put you in the hospital. But anyway, so if the seal is still good and the you know it hasn't changed dramatically, I'll open up the jar and then I'll smell it and I'll say, okay, this seems pretty normal. Maybe the it's faded a little bit or the texture slightly different. Um, if the top half inch is really discolored, I'll scrape it off to see what look what it looks like underneath. And if it looks fine, I'll take a taste. And typically, what my taste buds will tell me is that it's fine. It's not quite as delicious as it once was, um, but that it would still be good, sort of used as part of a braising medium. Like I will often combine some jam and some vinegar and maybe some garlic and onions and use that to braise like boneless skinless chicken thighs or um, a pork shoulder or something like that. Those, you know, that combination of fruit and sugar and vinegar and, you know, flavor agents is a really reliable and good one. So it may not be a jar that I'll spread on toast, but it certainly would be a jar that could become part of something. So that's kind of the sweet preserves and um, chutney approach. When it comes to pickles, you know, the visual inspection is much the same. You open up the jar, you know, check the seal, open up the jar. Often what you'll find with pickles is simply that the texture has really softened. And so then, you know, you decide that you chop them up and add them to something. Like that's really the recourse for a soft pickle. So you sort of turn it into a relish or a um, tartar sauce or something like that. And then it does, it works just fine. Um, yeah, but so, but after I, I have really found that after about five years, one, the quality is going to have declined to the point where it's really not very delicious anymore. And two, it's probably still on your shelf because you didn't like it in the first place. And you've just been waiting until it was funky enough that you could get rid of it in, um, sort of without feeling bad about it. Dirty secret. Uh, I almost never, ever eat jams or jellies. So, but people give me jams and jellies uh. all the time. And so <laughs> there are these sort of a nondescript handwritten cans of, or jars of things uh, and they've been given to me and, you know, I'm always going to be gracious. Like, Hey, thanks. And once in a while I'll use one, like I, I'll use it as an empanada filling or something. Yeah. But I, I don't put jam or jelly on toast ever, like ever. And, yeah. and so <laughs> I just, I, every year I clean out things, but sometimes I miss it. And I, I had, a, I had a, uh, a jar of, I think, cranberry preserves from 2011. Ooh, yeah. That's old. That I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know cranberries are special because they have uh, uh, benzoic acid in them. Yeah. And so they really do never go bad. 
and we can actually, I, we'll, we'll side note now that I've mentioned cranberries, and I don't know if you know this or I've done this or not, but there is a, a preserve in Scandinavia called Vatlingen, which they use lingonberries, but lingonberries are really just small cranberries. Mm-hmm. And all it is, is the, is the cranberry or the lingonberry preserved in nice clean water in a jar in a cool place forever. Huh, that's it. I did. I didn't know that and I've never tried it, but it doesn't surprise me because cranberries are just kind of remarkable. Like they, they bring flavor and tartness. They are pectin, you know, they add so much pectin to stuff. Like I, I rely on cranberries anytime in the winter when like something needs a, like a pectin boost. I like to combine them with frozen fruit in a jam. Like if I need to give a gift because they bring freshness and brightness and pectin to frozen like raspberries in a way that is like it just enlivens the whole thing hmm. i did not know that not yeah. being a jam and jelly person you know? well there you go but yeah i love it they they both preserved cranberries and, and lingonberries if you can get them um which i was up i was up hunting ptarmigan in the near the arctic circle this year so i i gathered you know big bags of lingonberries because why not uh they are the best thing to go with game i bet for all the reasons you just mentioned yeah yeah they I can just see because game is sort of it's got such richness and a little bit of funk sometimes and mm-hmm. the cranberries just slice through that or lingonberries. Yeah, that Absolutely. makes a lot of sense. Hey, everybody, if you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK. That's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word. And you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing. On the huntgathercook.com shop, you will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. You're talking about high acid, low acid. You want yes. To do that. So um, I know I mentioned that these jams and pickles and chutneys and things like they're going to be funky, but even if you taste them and they're old, they're not going to kill you. And that's because those are high acid preserves. And when we're talking about preserving, like there's, there's two categories, high acid and low acid and high acid are the things where the pH of the finished product has a pH of 4.6 or below. And that's in, that's indicative of a, a lot of acid content. And if it, is a low acid preserve, it's gonna have 4.7 pH or above. And this distinction doesn't really matter much to people who are just sort of casual canners, but what that pH line indicates is a moment where botulism spores can either germinate into a botulism toxin or not. And so with your high acid preserves, you are never going to have the risk of botulism spores germinating into a toxin because they cannot germinate in a high acid environment. So if there are any botulism spores present, they're not a worry because the acid is there inhibiting them. And so botulism is the only thing that can really cause true harm when it comes to canned goods. And so you never have to worry about that in your jams and jellies and pickles. And I know a lot of people are can be very 
anxious about canning in general because they have been fed this line that, oh, you know, I should be really scared of botulism. You know, I don't want to eat my neighbor's jams because, well, what if it gives me botulism? Jams are never going to give you botulism unless it's like an onion jam that someone has um, made up the recipe on their own and has no idea of this canning science and um, necessity for acid content. So um, it's only the low acid things that you have to worry about. And so when you're canning, you there's two approaches. There's the high acid um, water bath canning. And if you want to do a low acid um, preserve, then that's when you're going to need a pressure canner because botulism spores don't die at the boiling point. You need temperatures of around 240 degrees Fahrenheit to kill bot botulism spores. And obviously on our planet, um, in our atmosphere, you can't reach that with boiling water. Um, and so that's when you use a pressure canner because it can elevate the temperature inside that environment to around 250 degrees Fahrenheit, which is more than what you need to kill botulism spores. And so um, most of the home canning that people are doing, especially in the beginning, is this high acid boiling water bath canning. Um, but every so often I get someone coming to me saying, uh, I just made a bunch of chicken stock and I processed it in a boiling water bath canner. Is that okay? I'm like, nope. no, please don't <laughs> do that. Nope. <laughs> no, no, uh, dump it all out right now. So, um, yeah, so just if you, you know, because we were on this topic of how old is too old and is it safe to eat? If, even if you come across like some preserves in your grandmother's basement and they're from, you know, the nineties, as long as it's jams and jellies and pickles, you can feel really confident dumping those jars and not worrying that you're introducing a toxin into your environment because it's not going to be, it's just not going to be present. It's only when um, you come across like your grandmother's canned meats from the nineties that you might want to treat them with a little bit more caution. I have used home pressure can stock though. That's three years old. That seems fine. Oh yeah. I am. Um... I found some chicken stock recently that was four years old and um, I hadn't defatted it perfectly. So the, it had a slight, like I could tell that if I hadn't opened it within the next month or so, like it probably would have been rancid. Like it was just on the verge, but mm. I, I used it um, and it was fine. Like in, in the context of a pot of soup, it was totally fine. Um, but that's the real risk with older pressure canned, things that involve any sort of fat or oil is that they can get rancid more so than they can spoil. Do you know what's funny is that I should know this intuitively, but I've never heard that spoken in words before. And it just makes perfect sense. Well, especially because when you pressure can something, you're elevating the temperature of the, the fat or oil. And as you elevate the temperature of fats, they become unstable. And so like the pressure canning process while preserving it is also initiating a process of instability instability in those fat molecules that will lead to rancidity more quickly. Hmm. That's a really good tip that I'm going to add to my pressure can stock yeah. instructions because I actually prefer my stocks with a little bit of fat on top, but that suggests that they they won't they won't keep as long. Yeah, exactly. I I do try to defat my stocks pretty thoroughly because of that, because I know that they're going to keep better um, if I defat them as much as possible. I blast through at least three to five gallons of stock every year. So it's, it's, it's pretty much a constant revolving door. Yeah, I know. I've got um, a dozen quarts on my counter right now that I still haven't put away from Thanksgiving. Uh, turkey stock? Yeah. Yeah. For, see, my, my 
pantry is like grouse stock and squirrel uh. stock and, <laughs> and elk stock. And <laughs> Mine's not quite so exotic. Uh, you know, living in the middle of center city, Philadelphia, those things are a little hard to come by, but I you could do squirrel to... stock. Well, those, the squirrels in Philadelphia are pretty canny. They're hard to catch, <laughs> although they are quite plump because the squirrels at the playground where I take my kids, they are snack thieves. Like they will go into closed bags and find your snack stash and steal it. So uh, wow. they're, they're pretty plump. They're, they're fed on like pirate booty and peanut butter crackers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the old joke about city pigeons. Like I get asked, yes. can, you, can you eat city pigeons a lot? I'm like, well... If you check the crop and there's cigarette butts and Doritos in it, you you make the choice. <laughs> I'll take the rural pigeons. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think that's probably wise. Small batch. So yes. one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on is because you've literally written a book about small batch canning. I have and, indeed. And in, in, and in reality, kind of all of everything you do is not, you know, farmhouse batch because even your first book, yeah, my, is normal normal amounts yeah my first book the yields were like three to five pints like that was as much as um any recipe in that book um produces and then my second book preserving by the pint um the batch yields in that book are two to four half pints and i love i love small batches because especially someone i know i've said it a bunch of times but i live in the city i don't have a garden um, I mean, I literally, I live on the 20th floor of a high rise. So there's just not a lot of gardening happening here. And I am someone who grew up with gardening and fruit trees and I love all that. It's just not how my life has unfolded, but it doesn't mean that I can't can, which is also something I grew up with and I love. And um, so I wrote that book initially thinking about it as I, every recipe started with the unit of measure of produce that you would get like in a farm share or in a CSA box or at the farmer's market or like when you went to a U-Pick. So I was really thinking about really small quantities, trying to give people options for making sure that they didn't waste any of the local produce that they were spending their hard-earned money on and finding ways to make canning accessible and easy and not overwhelming because, you know, some people are scared of it because of the, they're afraid they're going to kill their friends and family. And other people are scared of it because they grew up, you know, with grandmothers who did six bushel of peaches on an easy day. And they don't want any, they don't want anything like that. And so I really believe that canning is a good skill for anyone who cooks and anyone who shops at farmer's markets or gets a CSA share, because, you know, you're not always going to be able to use those things up quickly. And um, you want to extend the lifespan of your food as much as possible, even more so now than, you know, almost 10 years ago when I was writing that book, because the price of food is so high. And so anything you can do to make sure that you are making the most out of every dollar you've spent on your food is going to benefit you in the end. And so that's that's why I think small batch canning is so useful. And so um, a jam recipe that can be made in a skillet with one quart of strawberries is a great way to make sure that you don't let those strawberries that you spent $8 on go to waste. Dude, you have no idea. I, uh, I was doing a recipe that required a white onion just this week. Uh huh. I spent a dollar for one white onion. Oh my God. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's, I try to not look because it makes me mad. Um, yeah. but yeah, a dollar for, I mean, it was a big white onion, but still like, uh, it's an onion. It's 
I actually have a yard and I grow onions and I grow onions for the express purpose of not having to buy onions. And some years I make it the whole year with my own onions, but I mean, I eat yeah. hundreds of onions every year. Yeah. And I, I have an extra fridge that's set at like 45 degrees where they hang out in cold storage and da da da. And shallots usually last me a whole year, but, but this year I've had to buy onions and it's just been, it's been, makes me, makes me grumpy. Yeah, I know. I understand. I, uh, I've been buying my onions at Costco lately simply because like it's the best price I can find. And I just kind of stash, you know, half the 10 pounds in the fridge. Cause I have an extra fridge too. That's the one sort of in kitchen indulgence I have these days. And, uh, yeah, because the, it's just, everything is so expensive. So you want to make the most of every little thing you're buying. And one way you can do that is tiny batches of preserves. Yeah. And, and beyond the economic factor of it, there are a number of things that we just want to have pickled or, or canned in some way, shape or form as, because it's just a better product. Absolutely. And it means too, that like, there are little things that you buy at the grocery store that you don't, you know, you don't have to buy. And then that trickles down. Like perhaps, you know, you do some, a couple small jars of pickled jalapenos, um, which is a great one, a good, you know, good thing to put on things. And then you also get the brine, that kind of spicy, flavorful brine when you're done that you can add to any number of things to get that flavor. And it means that you are also taking a jar out of the waste stream that might get, you know, recycled poorly later on down the line because you're doing it at home as well. So there are all sorts of benefits to learning how to make little batches of things because, you know, because they taste better, because you're saving some money, because you're reducing your waste stream and because it's satisfying and fun and you get the bragging rights of saying you made this and, you know, you don't have to make five pints of something to get those bragging rights. Yeah. And there are a lot of things that you just simply don't need five pints of. True. I mean, one of the things I love to do are uh, pickle green um, chili piquins or chiltepines. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. if, if you guys out there are not familiar with them, they're essentially a wild chili. And the, the actual pepper is no bigger than the size of your pinky fingernail. And, you know, you get hundreds of them and they are hot as blazes and they're fantastic pickled, but it's like, uh, how many do you need? Maybe, I mean, I eat a lot of them and maybe you need two pints of them a year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of other things, like another one that I really like to do in uh, small batches, I make pestos in small batches and that's not one that I can, that's one I freeze, but still it's like, I don't need to have 10 half pints of pesto in my freezer, but it's nice to have two or three half pints in there where, you know, I can pull it out to put on pizza or, I can add it to pasta or I can, you know, fold it up into a batch of bread or, you know, any number of things. Um, I like to use it in salad dressing as well. And, you know, that's a, that's a really good one too, where you can keep making it throughout the years. You get different greens or different herbs and kind of keep replenishing your stash, but you only need to make a small amount in the meantime to kind of keep yourself going and flowing. Yeah, for sure. Pesto is a great example. Again, it's not canning, but it's it's because uh, it's a freezer product. Yeah, but it's preserving, certainly. I, I got a question for you because since you brought it up. Uh, yeah. You have a recipe for sorrel pesto. Yeah. And, and sorrel turns army green if you look at it crosswise. And I'm wondering, is your is your sorrel pesto army green or have, have you found of... some magic to keep it vibrant? No, it's sort of brown, but it still tastes good. 
Yeah. And I, uh, I've never been one to be like, oh, it's not pretty. I'm not going to eat it. Um, I have been told that if you blanch the leaves before you um, pesto it just ever so, you know, 30 seconds in hot water and then shock them, that that helps preserve the color some. But even before kids, I didn't do things like that. And now with three and a half year old twin boys, that's never going to happen. And so I, uh, I just accept that it's brown and enjoy it, you know, close your eyes. It still tastes good. I get that quite a lot because you and I are on the opposite end of that spectrum. Oh, really? I will go through hell and high water to make sure that <laughs> things are cut correctly. Things are bright green. Things are, you know, it's just all these, cause I, I worked in professional kitchens Yeah. And, and sorrel is kind of, uh, it's kind of like advanced magic in the kitchen. If you can, you can make sorrel stay bright green and it, it's not 30 seconds blanching. It's five. Oh yeah. And so you, it's basically, sorry. You, yes. You put the, you put the bright green sorrel in boil. It's gotta be salty as hell and boiling like crazy. Drop it in, take it out, put in ice water. Boom. If you do that, it will set it and it, you'll have a nice bright green pesto for about three hours. And that's well, and- it. <laughs> have you have you does the freezer maintain it like if you get it into the freezer immediately will it keep or is it still losing its color it will, even it will keep if you have a, a you know kind of a finger's worth of olive oil on top of it mm-hmm. and i do i always cap all my pestos with olive oil on top because it also helps with the freezer burn like you don't lose them to freezer burn if you when you're freezing pesto if you cap them with olive oil um but yeah, see, that's just too much trouble for me. It's still going to taste good, even if it's brown. And so <laughs> cannot, cannot be bothered, but I well, understand. You, you mean you don't do it? You don't do a perfect brunoise for your, your relishes and chutneys? Oh God, no. I, you know, I'm, I am of the school of good enough, you know, I mean, certainly I want it to be like, for me, flavor is paramount. Visually, I want it to look good enough. Like it should look, you know, inviting, um, but I'm definitely of the school of it's good enough. You got it in the jars. Like I even take that to the point where, you know, if I have a jam that doesn't turn out, um, like if it's a little bit sloshy, mm-hmm. I don't remake it. I rename it. Like if it's in the jar, my job is done. I, and it, if it isn't exactly how I imag- imagined it would be, I'm going to rename it so that it, the appearance matches the name rather than try to remake it and make the, you know, make it so that it is how I envisioned it the first time, because who has the time for that? Like, you just got to get it done. And so, you know, I've certainly been someone who um, relabels her runny strawberry jam, um, ice cream topping. And um, sometimes I will label slightly soggy pickles. I'll put in like a piece of tape on them. that says, these are for chopping and adding to tuna salad and um potato salad i don't you know, know if you know that 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 is an old chef's trick but that is an old chef's trick because, <laughs> because you have you have a busy life to deal with with your yeah. children and whatever in the in a professional kitchen if you make something and it ain't what you planned you change the menu yeah it's like nope nope this is a this is a, so my ice cream wouldn't set up it's a creme anglaise there you go. Yeah. See, I didn't know it was a chef's trick, but I, I can, I can understand why it would be because you just have to roll with what you've got sometimes. And so you've yep. got to change expectations. And as long as no one knows that you intended it to be different, doesn't matter. You just exactly. embrace it and move on. 
I have had though, I and I'm thinking very specifically of I try to make a prickly pear kind of marmalade. Uh-huh. And it would not set. And it turned kind of ugly brown okay. as, it, as it cooked. Um hmm. and I ended up pitching it because I just was I would look at it in the pantry and it just it's my failure staring me in the face. And I was like, ah. I grow prickly pears, so it's not like it cost cost me any money. Yeah. But I, I was just like, God damn it. You know, like I wanted it to be, you know, that magenta, ma- magenta color. And I wanted it to set up because I wanted to put it in empanadas, make sweet empanadas. With mm. it. But it just it just stayed runny. It turns, you know, not even brick red. It just turns kind of like brown and because it's oxidized to hell. And so I just I gave up on it. Have you ever tried it again? Not a, and that was last year, so I haven't. Okay, I have an idea for you if you want to okay. hear it. Sure. Um, so I don't know what the pectin con. Did you add additional pectin, or were you just doing like a sugar and um, prickly pear situation? I did a sugar and prickly pear situation with uh, with uh, citric acid. Okay, um, I would probably employ some Pomona's pectin there. That's a um, Pomona's pectin is a low and no sugar pectin that doesn't. Um, so it's a, it's essentially a pectin where you don't have to have any certain concentration of sugar in order to get it to set up and it activates very quickly. And so, um, have you ever used it before? Years ago. Okay. Um, one of the things that I have found with Pomona's pectin is that the instructions on the packet have you used far too much. So what I would do advise you to do is perhaps start maybe like with a prickly pear jelly, um, where you just juice it and then you only just bring the juice to a boil with the sugar and the citric acid. And then you're going to add um, calcium water in each box of pe- Pomona's pectin comes with a calcium packet and a pectin packet. So you make a calcium solution, you add the, um, and you wouldn't even start with the sugar. I don't think you would just do citric acid, prickly pear juice and the calcium water, just bring it up to a boil, stir about half as much pectin as the recipe calls for into some sugar pour that in, stir it just to it till it dissolves and then take it off the heat. So you're going to cook it maybe for like whatever it will be five minutes or something. So you'll avoid some of that oxidation. And then my guess is that there wasn't enough pectin in the prickly pears naturally to get a set. And so um, the Pomona's pectin will create a very fast set and it will be a good experiment just to see if you can get prickly pears to set the way you want them to. I know that prickly pear jelly is a thing. I yeah. was trying to get, but but getting it clear and uh, like a good jelly is, that's one of those sort of things that like, hmm, okay. Um, but I mean, just to see if you can, if you get, if you can get the flavor, like the sweetness level and the citric acid level that you like right. with the jelly, it would be more of like a small batch experiment to see if you can kind of hone in on what the flavor you want to achieve first. Mm. And then, um, and then you could start then what I would do is probably macerate like the, if you were cubing it for a kind of a more of a marmalade effect, you would macerate the fruit with the sugar like overnight to extract the juice. And then you do much the same thing where you just boil it really quickly, add some sugar and pectin. You've already had the calcium water in there with the sugar and um, prickly pear. And that would probably be how you would get a nice looking set product. Anyway, wow. we're in we're in the weeds here with this, but we are. <laughs> I, I have thoughts. We could talk more about this um, offline too, if you want. 
um, a better recounting of that. But I think that that's how you would get something that would be more visually appealing. But, you know, we have all been there with preserves that don't hit the mark. And sometimes they hit the mark so poorly that you have to dump them and that's okay. Um, when I was writing my naturally sweet book, because that, you know, book uses honey and um, maple syrup and other less processed sugars, there were some real stinkers that I just dumped because they did not turn out the way you wanted and you just kind of have to move on. Um, I had a, I had a lot of struggles finding ways to make coconut sugar work at first because it's got such an earthy flavor. And so you can't just use it as a regular sweetener. You have to work with that earthy flavor because it doesn't it's funny, go away. I was just going to say that, that the coolest things that you, that I find with different honeys with maple sugar, with maple syrup, or with, you know, coconut sugar is another example is you have to go with what God gave you. You can't exactly. shoehorn it into something else. Yeah. And once I learned that lesson with all those sweeteners, it was much easier to develop recipes for that book, but it took uh, a while of sort of accepting that you have to really embrace the qualities of the sweeteners as opposed to fighting them. And once I did that, I really found my stride with that book, but it took a while. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flap pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. I imagine that things that are preserved with honey would last better than with white sugar because honey is invulnerable to well, much honey, everything, isn't it? Honey is invulnerable until you dilute it and you heat ah. it. Um, and then, then it loses a lot of its oomph. So the thing with honey is that it's a good preservative once that, while the jar is still sealed. But as soon as you open a preserve that's sweetened with honey, a clock starts ticking and you have about 10 to 14 days before that preserve is going to start molding. And so um, I always tell people with any natural sweetener that they want to use the smallest jars that are reasonable for them to eat through in about two weeks. So um, I do a lot when I use natural sweeteners, I always use the quarter pint jars just to make sure that I'm not going to lose any product to mold because they just don't um, stave off mold the way um, refined white sugar does. See, there you go. There's another thing that I did not know that I'm glad <laughs> I know now. There you go. Small batch, uh, you know, are there things to, to care about or things to do differently if you're doing a, a small batch canning project versus you're making eight quarts? 
Well, anytime you're working with smaller batches, a little bit more precision is going to be important in terms of like spices and measuring and flavors, you know, so there's not as much forgiveness naturally available in the product. So, um, you know, if you're at, if you're making like a small batch skillet, peach, cinnamon compote, you really want to make sure that you're not overdoing it with spices because there's nowhere for it to hide in a small batch. Um, same goes with making sure that your produce is in really pretty good shape. You know, um, I often am asked, what's the ideal level of ripeness for a preserve? And really you want things to be slightly under ripe or right on the nose ripe. Just, you're not gonna be able to save something that is on its downward slide when you preserve, but especially in small batches, because again, there's nowhere for like, if you're only making something that's involving like four apples, if one of them is sort of bruised and bumped and has started to taste slightly um, fermented, there's nowhere for that flavor to go. Um, there's just not enough buffer. So you can do a really good job of preserving the food you bought, but if it's already too far gone that you don't want to eat it any other way, preserving it, you know, adding some sugar and spices isn't going to make it better. It's just going to make something that you're going to waste ingredients on. Hmm. So I guess that's, that's my warning. Um, and also when you're making a small batch of jam, the moment between a nice set and overcooking is shorter, you know? So like when it comes to chutneys or jams or fruit butters, anything where you're using um, reduction to create your set, uh, you have to watch it really carefully when you're making a small batch because you go from set to overset very quickly. So, you know, just don't walk away from your pan in the last 30 seconds of cooking because you're going to go from perfect to burnt in the blink of an eye. Interesting. And so if you, if you had triple that, that amount, it's less than, it's, it's much more time or how much, yeah. what well, are we I mean, talking about? 30 seconds to two, to two minutes or. Yeah. Well, certainly when you have more volume in the pot, you know, you can kind of stir it in. And if something, it got slightly caramelized on the bottom, there's more space for that flavor to be reincorporated into a finished product. But like if you're making a skillet jam with a cup and, you know, maybe it's like, three cups of fruit and one cup of sugar, and it's reduced down in the pan to just two cups of product in the end, like it's just going to caramelize much faster than if you had a big pot with, um, you know, eight cups of fruit and four cups of sugar. And so I just find that like in that, in the last 30 seconds of cooking, um, it can really caramelize to the point where it's unpleasant very quickly. Whereas in that big pot where there's more product in the pan absorbing the heat, it just doesn't happen as fast. That makes sense. I think another advantage, not, not necessarily a pitfall of small batch canning, is the advantage of it is especially if you're not using quartz, is you can water bath can half pints and pints in a regular stock pot that you yes. use in your regular kitchen. Where, you know, you really need something much bigger if you're going to do quart jars. Oh, absolutely. I do. I have, um, you know, those asparagus pots, like the tall, skinny asparagus pots that already have the racks in them. Um, those are my favorite really tiny batch canners because you can um, plop one pint jar in there or stack a couple of the wide mouth half pints in there and process just that. And it comes up to a boil really fast. You're not heating up your whole kitchen. 
um, and it kind of returns to a boil once you get the jars in it lightning fast. So everything about small batches is faster, which is always a, you know, a benefit, especially for people who are living busy lives. Like it just, it makes it so much more manageable for a lot of people. To be clear. And I've always, I've never really done this because I always, I don't do a lot of small batch canning canning in, in terms of actually officially sealing it. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into that in a second, but in terms of actual canning canning it is perfectly fine to stack the jars on top of each other it is it is some places you'll see that they recommend a rack in between but it doesn't it doesn't do any harm to stack the jars i mean you'll even find that it's acceptable to stack in pressure canners because the heat is going to still penetrate you know so what's happening when you're processing a jar you know so you've got your full jar of whatever you're making you've left about um, a half an inch to a quarter inch of headspace um, between the top of the product and the lid of the jar, you've applied a clean lid, you've added your ring, you've tightened it to tightened it just to the point where it meets resistance. You put that in your pot. And what happens is that the heat of the canning pot starts making the um, oxygen that's trapped in the jar expand and vent out of the jar. So throughout the process of boiling the jars, um, that oxygen is venting. And even if the jars are stacked, it's not going to you know, prevent the jar from venting. Like the power of the venting oxygen is far more than the power of a half pint jar sitting on top of each other. And so the oxygen is venting out. So as the processing goes, you void the oxygen from the jar. When the processing time is up, you remove the jar from the canning pot and everything that had been sort of expanding during this heat process starts to contract. And as that contraction happens, the lid gets sucked down into that vacuum because there's no oxygen there holding the space anymore. And so that vacuum is formed. And so then you have a jar that is sterilized and also vented of oxygen. And that's how it keeps its quality for so long is that you don't have the air in there with, with any um, microorganisms or anything, and you've killed them, any that might have might have survived the venting process by the presence of the boiling water. Hmm. That's, that's a very, very, it's, I can tell you've studied this a little bit. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time reading things about canning and um, food preservation. So one thing about small batch canning that I dearly love, because keep in mind that most of the things that I do uh, with small batch canning are, are pickles of some sort yeah. um, or a syrup. So like a real syrup, a one-to-one syrup. Mm -hmm. like, when what I mean by that out there is, is uh, if you've got a quart of uh, high bush cranberry juice, you wow. mix that with a quart of sugar. And so that, that thing is never going to die ever. Like that's no. going to out, outlive humanity. Well, uh, <laughs> because the, you've got um, so little water activity, like there's, there's a reason for it in science. And that is that the sugar is occupying all of the water available in that product. And so there's no water available to microorganisms. And so they're never going to grow like that. Yes. Yeah. I, can, I bet you get this too. I, I make a lot of wild syrups because there's a lot of wild berries and fruits and things that have pits or they're just not, you can't just sit there and eat them. So yeah. A lot of times the best way to enjoy, say, rowan berries or highbush cranberries or well, you can eat service berries. But anyway, there's a lot of things where it's just better as a syrup. We yeah. have a we have a gooseberry in the Sierra Nevada here that looks like Sputnik. It's covered in spines. <laughs> yeah, you can't. I mean, yes, you can sit there and peel off, but nobody does. That is that is much better as a syrup. So. 
I make these one-to-one syrups and I've had them. I mean, I just opened a jar of prickly pear syrup that was six years old and it was perfectly fine. It's same color, no, no, no problems whatsoever because I make these very concentrated syrups. I get asked all the time, well, do you have to use so much sugar? And the answer is no, but you have to keep it in the fridge and it's going to go moldy or turn into alcohol. Yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing, but. That's not what you're going for, you know. Right. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who cares about where their food comes from and is excited to explore wild and unique foods. Foraged Market helps you do just that. Foraged Market is an online marketplace full of unique ingredients and food products that ship directly from foragers and farmers right to your door. Whether you're looking for interesting ingredients or looking to grow your own food business, you need to check out Foraged Market. Because of their ever-growing list of vendors, they have an awesome selection of ingredients and products. From pickled milkweed pods to ramp kimchi to dried wild mushrooms to craft pantry items and much more. Forage Market is sure to have something interesting for you. In addition to incredible food, Forage helps people connect. Forage.com has awesome features like direct messaging. So you can chat with the small business owners on Forage to explore new things and learn more about what's on your dinner plate. Head over to www.foraged.com and help put power back in the hands of independent food producers. Pickles. Pickles, yes. Pickles are the quintessential small batch canning thing, in my opinion, because uh, you don't actually have to can them. I have done refrigerator pickles that will last a year, and you just stick them in the back of your fridge, and they're perfectly fine. And honestly, most pickles are better that way, um, especially with like more fragile vegetables. You know, people have often asked me, how do you get really crunchy cucumber pickles that are shelf stable? And it's hard. It's a really hard thing to do, but they make a great, great fridge pickle. Um, the only vegetables that I feel like do better as a processed pickle than a refrigerator pickle are green beans and okra. Like those are the two for me that don't suffer from a canning pot, but otherwise, you know, most vegetables really prefer um, to just be sort of packed in a jar with a lot of flavorful things and then have a hot brine poured over them, let cool, and then into the refrigerator. Like that, that makes an exceptional pickle. I would argue that cauliflower and carrots like, like a canning pot. I I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Um, Because they're very hard. Yeah, I sometimes blanch a carrot if I'm going to make a quick pickle out of it to soften it enough to absorb the brine. That makes sense. Yeah. The the thing about this process that we're that both Marissa and I love so much is that me, especially because I'm dealing with wild things, mm-hmm. you often don't have a bushel of wild things. And you want to pickle, uh, you found some bull kelp on the seashore and, you know, pickled bull kelp. You know, you that actually is kind of a bad example because a bull kelp whip is usually six feet long. Uh, <laughs> but, but okay, so you want to pickle? Uh, oh, here's a good example: sea uh, sea rocket pods, which okay. are a wild equivalent of radish. You know, little you know, the, if you've ever seen radish pods, yeah, um, they look like a I don't know what they look like. They look like a teardrop kind of thing. You often are never going to have more than a pint or two of those very small things. And sure, you can water bath can it, just like what Marissa just said with the, the asparagus pot or something something similar. 
but they're not going to take up a ton of space. They're a delicacy. This is the thing about the small batch canning that is interesting is that you can create these delicacies and they won't take up a much spot in your, in your fridge. And they add so much to your, you know, to your life, really. I mean, one, a good example are nasturtium capers. Yes. Which again, you're not going to make eight quarts of nasturtium capers. No, or um, the little cucumbers look like that look like watermelons. Oh um, yeah, the mouse melons. Yes, they are delicious as a refrigerator pickle, but they lose all texture the minute you introduce them to any prolonged heat, and they get kind of spongy. But you're not like they're they're hard to grow. You're not going to get a lot of them anywhere. I and so hate growing mouse melons. I've grown them for two years now, and <laughs> I don't know if have you ever grown them? I haven't. No. The plant is it's semi wild, right? So it's this, it is a imagine a wild cucumber. Okay, so it's the 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 tendrils are small, the leaves are small, the fruit is small. Yeah. But because it's essentially wild, the size of the plant versus the yield of the mouse melons, they're also called Mexican gherkins. Yes. It is profound. Like I have a three by nine foot bed. And God help you if they, because they, they reseed themselves, because you're not going to catch them all. Uh, yeah. God help you if you let this thing grow. It will completely annihilate everything else in that bed and will give you maybe, maybe, maybe two pints <laughs> of mouse melons. <laughs> yeah. But so, they, they make a nice little pickle, but you're never going to do it in large quantities. Right. And, and yeah. unless you have a farm, you're not going to actually grow them. No, but yeah, but they're, they're another one that do so much better as a quick pickle. Um, another really good one that I've done, I've done both ways as a preserved pickle or a, a quick pickle. And I think it's much better is like the really beautiful, tiny um, purple streak, purple and white streaked eggplants. Um, you can make a really delicious pickle with those and they just lose all color and texture if you water bath can them but mm. if you do them as a preserve as a fridge pickle you know and sort of take them in um in a direction with like some sesame oil and ginger they are and rice wine vinegar they are so good as a pickle um and it's all you need is the the heat of the brine because they bring the brine up to a, a boil and pour it over and that's enough to kind of soften them to the point where they are delicious hmm. i've never pickled uh, eggplant I, I I used to, um, years and years ago, I think it's been um, more than a decade, I wrote a column for Serious Eats called In a Pickle. And I did it for a little over a year and wrote it weekly. And so in the process of that, I think I pickled just about everything, every vegetable and some fruits that you could pickle because, uh, you know, once a week pickle, you got to come up with something. What about lactic acid fermented pickles? Um, I love to ferment pickles. I have varying amounts of success with it simply because my apartment's a little bit warm for it oftentimes. Um, but I certainly the classic sauerkraut I've done many, many times and adore. And I love to put varying spins on sauerkraut. And I never make more than a quart at a time because that's, you know, all I need to have going at any one point. And so I will often throughout the winter, start a quart of sauerkraut every two or three weeks so that as I finish off one, I have another one that's coming to be ready. Um, 
I also really love uh, doing a fermented dilly bean. So like a pickled green bean with dill and garlic um, and peppercorns. And that's another nice one to do in small batches, especially like if I get a pound of green beans in a CSA share, you know, I can plunk them into a water brine and they are so good. And they get a little bit like they trap the bubbles inside the green bean pods. And so they are a little bit fizzy when you bite into them, which is really very pleasing. Hmm. Um, yeah. I have never canned, like officially canned anything that was fermented. I've always just stuck it in the fridge and called it a day. Um, I have, and honestly, I don't really recommend it. Um, I have, I have done the whole process where I made a big batch of sauerkraut and then I, um, brought it to a boil and repacked it in jars and processed it. And it's fine in a pinch. Like if you're going to use a sauerkraut in a cooked application. So like if you're someone who does, you know, stewed pork and sauerkraut for the new year, having a can um, of sauerkraut, a jar of sauerkraut on the shelf that you've, you open up and put in that is certainly, it's a fine application, but I really do think that fermented foods are better if you don't heat process them. Like they lose their crunch. They, um, the flavor mutes a little bit. And of course you don't get any of the beneficial bacteria if you've processed them. So I think of that as something where if you make it in small batches, just like those quick pickles, you can certainly devote a little fridge space to them and it's not a problem. And they kind of never really go bad. Like no. I've, I, I don't eat sauerkraut until it's six months old. <laughs> you are hardcore. <laughs> But we I mean, I, I, I like my, I like my fermented foods funky. Yeah. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. I, um... I mean, I'm a guy who makes my own fish sauce. <laughs> I am not surprised by that at all. I can tell you that if you make, I'm going to do a whole another episode on, on really super weird stuff, but I can tell you that if you make something where you're autolysizing, if you're, autolysis is a process. So the word I guess would be autolysizing. Uh, animal proteins, uh-huh. your salt content needs to be at least 18% or woe be unto you, the smell. Oh, I bet. I have Ooh. messed that up a couple times and I, because it likes heat as well. So fish sauce doesn't really do its thing until the temperature gets above 80. And, you know, it gets 115 in, in Sacramento, but if, yeah. if you're, your <laughs> your salt content isn't, high enough you get a kind of like wow that smells like the hold of a vietnamese fishing boat (laughs) (laughs) oh i can only imagine how how foul that is it's super not good but 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 really good fish sauce and that that also never dies because you know it's got a 20 percent salt content yeah and that'll sit in your pantry for years and years and years and it just gets better Salt and sugar, they really yep. do a lot for us. Or acids, you know. Yes, exactly. There's a, a, a sauce called Pontac, which is, um, if you imagine kind of an A1 steak sauce meets elderberries, uh huh. that's what, it's an English thing that's been around for several hundred years. And the instructions, if you find them in historical books, say that it, it really hits its stride at year seven. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, I'm not surprised. You know, some things just need time. Some things They're, need time. They really do. I mean, what about that actually is another aspect of small batch canning, which you could either get in trouble or not, because you could 
you could do a small batch of something and you'll kind of know where it's going to hit without having to make a giant investment. But on the other hand, I'm thinking of wine, for example. If you make small quantities of wine, it will not age as well because you need the kind of, you know, we were talking a bit before about a small bit of that strawberry jam caramelizing versus a big bit. The same is true with if you introduce oak to wine, which is, there's a reason why the the barrels are a size they are is because the ratio of wood to surface ratio of wine is, they figured it out. Yeah, that makes sense. If you put, you know, if you had a five gallon barrel, I mean, they make them, but your, your wine is going to be over oaked. So I'm wondering, this is just me talking, wondering at this point, if there are certain things that do require time that are better done in bulk uh, or better done in small batches. Huh. That's a really good question. Um, well, certainly like if you're making a liqueur of some kind, you know, if you want to do a small batch of that, like if you won't take, I don't know, sour cherries and infuse them into vodka and let that sit, you're going to want to give that six months to a year before you add sugar just to get the full extraction of flavor and color from that. So that's something that certainly wants time, um, but you can do that in any variety of sizes. I can't think of anything that I do that needs a certain volume other than maybe like a tomato paste. Like there's no way to approach tomato paste or a tomato conserva and get a satisfying yield if you want to start as a small batch. Like that's the one thing I can think of that you necessarily need a certain quantity as a starting point in order to have any yield that is satisfying. I'm totally um, thinking of like, I'm going to make six tablespoons of tomato paste. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's not going to be, you know, because when you're making tomato paste, you can never like, and I've done a relatively small batch of tomato paste where it's like, it starts with like 15 pounds of tomatoes and the batch yield is um, maybe like three pints that I spread across a dozen quarter pint jars. And that's what you would think of as a small batch of tomato paste that would still give you a satisfying yield. But like you would never make a t- batch of tomato paste that started with like three pounds of tomatoes and get anything that made you happy. Like there would, you would just be like angry at the effort. That's a great example. I actually talked quite a bit about making Stratu or uh, Conserva with a woman named Rosetta Costantino who runs she did, she's from Calabria. And, and so she does all the old school methods uh-huh. and one of which you're not a very big fan of. <laughs> and, and when we talked about, uh, we talked about making, making tomato paste and, and yes, it's, and my neighbors are from Puglia and my neighbors put together, this is, this is be the anti small batch canning portion of the show. Uh, <laughs> tomato sauce. Like, I'm sorry, I guess you, yeah, sure. You could make you could can a couple of quarts of tomatoes and fine, but why would you just go to the store? You know, the, what I do because I use tomatoes and most Americans that I know use just ass loads of tomatoes. Yeah. So I will fire up the grill and create big wood fires with fruit oh, wow. or, or mesquite. And I will roast all of the tomatoes. And so they're smoky. Uh-huh. And, and then I make a tomato sauce out of that because in my opinion, 
you, you can tell me if I'm wrong. If you're going to make tomato sauce, you know, like a like a canned tomato product that you're going to yeah. use later, it, it should be better than what you can buy in the store. And because the the California tomato industry is so good at what they do, and then the Italians are very good at it as well. Unless you're going to make something that's different or special, that's kind of, in my opinion, it's a waste of time. I can see that. Um, I will say, like, obviously, I cannot make a big mesquite fire and smoke all my tomatoes. But I do typically like 100 to 150 pounds of tomatoes each fall. Um, and I do them as a, a sort of a concentrated puree and as a whole peeled tomato. And when I do my whole peels, or like, I guess they're a half peeled tomato, I broil them to try to get some of that kind of smoky. And that's also how I get the peels off. So I line them on sheet trays, cut in half, broil them until everything blisters and I pluck those skins off. And I guess I am creating a product that I can't get in the store because it is a super ripe red all the way through tomato that has been broiled and packed in its own juices and processed. And so for me, that's the tomato that's kind of worth the effort um, because it's super flavorful and it's super concentrated. Um, but it's close to like a fire roasted canned tomato that you could get at the store. It's just a little bit better. So I guess you're right. I've talked to myself around to your side that, yeah, there's no point in making a tomato product that is, that matches what you can get at the store. It should be a little bit better. And that's why, that's why I do it that way. Yeah. Another good example to keep with tomatoes are um, tomato products with different colored tomatoes. Yes. So I will often once a year when in usually in August, I will comb the farmer's market and I will buy everybody's golden tomatoes mm -hmm. and I will make a cooked down golden tomato puree with the express purpose of it going in mole amarillo. Mm. And, and so I don't make a ton of it. That's another good example of a small batch where I may start with 20 pounds of golden tomatoes, but it ends up being a half a dozen pints of really amazing golden tomato puree that makes that particular Mexican mole really, really shine. And it's, it's not traditional. They don't do that in Mexico. They, yeah. they use regular tomatoes, but if I'm going to make an Amarillo, like a yellow mole, I'm going to use yellow tomatoes if I, if I can. So it's just been my, that's my own little quirk. Yeah. I am in the past when I can find them at a good price, I've done that with sun golds where I will, you know, get like five pounds of sun golds and make a tomato jam with those with ginger and lots of lemon and, um, the combination of that that vibrant flavor from the ginger and the lemon with those that's the sweetness of those tomatoes and then the color mm. it's it's nothing like you find anywhere else it's so good that's super cool so I, I do have to tell the people who are listening here you, you will have heard it if you listen to the um the italian episode but marissa and i are of two minds of this very traditional italian method of preservation which i use all the time and I don't know if you've come around to it, but when we last spoke years ago, uh, you you gave me a little bit of stink eye for it. But uh, it's where you take mushrooms or eggplants or zucchini uh, or peppers and you uh, you salt them a little bit, then you boil them in vinegar, then lay them out to kind of half dry so that they're they're not they're neither wet nor dry. And then you preserve them under olive oil and it works really, really well Been done for a thousand or two years in Italy. The USDA hates it. It is. Here's what I say about that approach. It is not for beginners. It is not 
for people who are just starting out preserving food. Um, and it's something best learned from people who have done it a lot and have had a lot of good, ex good success with it. Um, it could be a little bit fraught or perhaps dangerous for people who have, don't have a lot of experience with food preservation. Um, certainly in imbuing it with the vinegar helps create a more acidic environment. The problem with um, the olive oil is simply that it creates this anaerobic environment that should there be a botulism spore there could potentially create an environment that would be more hospitable to the growth of um, botulism toxin. So there is a small chance that something bad could happen. Um, that said, I've never heard of an instance in the US where anything bad has happened from that. I don't know how they report um, botulism deaths in Italy. Perhaps it's just not as common there. Um, it just, it's not a technique I'd recommend to beginners. Like that's, that's what I say about that. I, okay. I'm going to agree with you on that one. Yeah. It's not because you, there are certain things to look at and to, to notice yeah. when you're dealing with it that you, you just kind of have to know, you know, Rosetta and I kind of agreed that you're effectively manually creating the effects of a salami by doing this process with vegetables because mm. so a salami is fermented salted meat that you it's you salt it for botulism reasons yeah fermentation helps even more because lactic acid bacteria within the meat drops the ph of the meat below 4.6 and yeah. and then sometimes way below it and then you dry it so you reduce water content so this this Italian technique is introducing salt. It is increasing the acidity and it's lowering the water content all at the same time. And, you know, in these successive steps. And we kind of worked it out as we were talking, like, yeah, I guess you're right. That's probably why it works. Yeah. And I think that if by doing all those steps, it, it, yeah, that is probably why it works. I just, um, you need all the right conditions to, to make a success of that. And, you know, just like I wouldn't necessarily encourage a new food preserver to make salami, I wouldn't encourage them to try this, but yep. I see why it works. I understand. So before I let you go, uh, I kind of want to go through your Marissa's top pet peeves when it comes to food or when, when it comes to canning safety. <clears throat> I, I bet you have a, a bunch of them and I, I, I really want to hear it. You mean like things that the USDA hands down that I think are silly or the reverse, uh, the, the reverse, reverse. The, the, the things that people swear by that are like, Oh my God, why aren't you dead? Oh, okay. Um, the one that really makes me crazy is the people who swear that you can preserve um, just salted green beans in a boiling water bath canner. And if you boil the jars for an hour and a half, that'll do enough to kill off the botulism spores and they're safe to eat. One, nobody really wants to eat green beans that have been boiled for an hour and a half. And two, you can boil and boil and boil something. It's still not going to get to 240 degrees Fahrenheit. You're never going to kill off those botulism spores. So, you know, please don't can vegetables in a boiling water bath canner. It's just not a good idea. Like that's the one, um, that's really my number one pet peeve. For I guess me, the, I hear that with meat. Yeah. There's like in Newfoundland, there's this tradition of, they call it jarred moose. 
and it's oh, the exact same thing. They will they will take moose meat and they will salt it and they will put it they will boil it in a boiling water canner for like I don't know two hours or something, and they swear by it. And I'm like, no, no effing way. You can sum it up with this. I don't want to ever hear the phrase from someone when well, my grandmother did it and it didn't kill her. I don't want to hear that anymore. She was just lucky. She, we have better science now. Let's embrace the science and the know-how we have and update our standards. We, you know, they always say, um, know better, do better. I, I embrace that. Like we know better about the science of food preservation now than we did 75 years ago. So let's embrace that knowledge um, and, and do better. Now flip it. Now, because you started with things that the USDA says that are dumb. Well, I guess it's not so much the USDA, but, you know, I get a lot of um, feedback from people saying, oh, I'm in a Facebook group, a safe canning Facebook group. And people tell me your recipes aren't safe because they're not independently tested by a lab, that you don't have every recipe you create tested. And it's like I get really frustrated with people who are scaring folks like that they can't use my recipes, but somehow they're unsafe. It is, you know, peach jam. You don't need to have a peach jam recipe independently tested for a lab by a lab. The pH of yellow peaches is well below 4.6. There's very little you could do with a peach to make it unsafe for boiling water bath canning. And this idea that um, every recipe has to be independently tested by a lab in order to be proven safe is absurd. You know, we we understand what is safe and what isn't we can take that science and apply it to a whole variety of foods and extrapolate in a way that is perfectly safe and i think that that's my biggest pet peeve it's like on the one hand you've got the people who don't care about safety and on the other hand you've got the people who care so much that they say that if it's a, if it if the ball the recipe didn't come from ball or the national home center for home food preservation then it can't be safe like i get very frustrated with both ends of those spec of that spectrum yeah, I do too. I mean, one of my things is the USDA frowns on pressure canned smoked fish. Well, what? everybody, everybody in Alaska has pressure canned smoked fish for like pretty much the entire population eats it. And yeah, there's a method. It's basically you take your smoked fish and you put it into uh, half pint uh, or at the most pint jars. They never do more than pints. Yeah, and you pressure can it for like an hour and twenty minutes, just like you would regular fish. And they're like, nope, we can't, we can't give our vaguely papal gesture over this process, but literally no one dies or even gets, or gets botulism or sick from that particular product. Well, they have this thing where if they haven't done extreme independent testing, they can't say yay or nay. There's no extrapolation of science in the National Center for Home Food Preservation. And unfortunately they have no funding. So like there's never going to be any you know vague pap papal blessing because they don't have the money or the resources to make it happen and so th like that's the problem is that there's no like there's not enough interest in food preservation home food preservation or you know small cottage food preservation to do any additional research or science and the even ball who used to do some sort of pushing out the boat in terms of recipe development. Um, since they were bought by Newell, which is the company that owns Rubbermaid, they have basically closed their test kitchen and aren't doing any um, recipe development. So no one is expanding the knowledge base at this point. And it's very frustrating. So 
Wow, I didn't anyway, know that at all. That's yeah, that's, that's not good news. No, it's terrible news. Um, basically, when Newell bought Ball, they stopped treating it as a food preservation and home canning company and started treating it as a container producer. And so um, they had they had a whole test kitchen staff. They had a chef on staff who you know was writing their books and really innovating. And all of that went away. This actually brings up the question: There's Mason Kerr Ball. Those are kind of the three big jar companies. No, they all they're, all, they're, they're all they're all the same. Um, Ball, Kerr, Golden Harvest, Bernardin. Those are all owned by Newell. There is um, the only jars that you'll find out there that aren't owned by them are the like, is it Le Parfait um, and Weck, the Luigi Barrio. I'm blanking on their name right now, but like the Italian, the Italian brand, the English brand the German brand and the French brand. Like those are the other jars. You find some like Anchor Hawking came to market with some jars a couple of years ago, but I don't know if they're doing that. You find some that are produced in China under a variety of names, but they're not as reliable. I mean, basically it's an, a monopoly. Huh. And <laughs> yeah, I can tell, I can speak from bitter experience about those damn Chinese lids. Oh, they're during, terrible. During the pandemic, you couldn't get real ball lids or Mason lids. And, yeah. and so you go on Amazon and, and it, you know, yeah, these work fine. They basically yeah. exploded, especially pressure canning. And so I drove, I drove like 60 miles because I heard that there were some actual Mason jar lids at a Walmart that, and they, fortunately they were there when I got there, but it was like during the pandemic, it was rough. Yeah. There's only one other brand of jars that I trust or jar lids that I trust right now that I got to try this summer. Um, it's a company called Superb, and they had been making the sort of um, unbranded lids for places like Layman's and Fillmore Container for a lot of years. And so they have um, created their own in-house brand and are selling their lids and they are quite good. But otherwise, the, those are the only alternative lids I use other than Ball because everything else I've tried has been terrible. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than, especially pressure canning. I know it's, it's devastating because you go through all this work and it all hinges on the lid. Like mm -hmm. if the lid doesn't work, all your effort is for, for not. I mean, and technically you could repressure can it with better lids, but then you've just cooked the crap out of whatever. Exactly. Is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you want to see what's in your stew. <laughs> really? You know, occasionally you want to know what's in there. It doesn't want to be brown murk. I mean, unless it's burgoo. <laughs> well where can people find you so first tell me your your four books and then yes. tell people where they can find uh marissa mcclellan on the internet okay so um my books are food and jars preserving by the pint naturally sweet food and jars and the food and jars kitchen and my website is foodinjars.com and you can find me i'm food and jars on instagram and facebook I keep meaning to start making TikToks, but I haven't managed to do that yet. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm out there. So you can get those books wherever fine books are sold. You can either, if you need them today, you can get them from Amazon. But if you would like to help Marissa more, you would get them at a bookstore. Yes, yes. Bookshop.org is always a good option. Oh, that that's way, a good one. Yeah, because then you can benefit, you can choose a local bookshop to order kind of through, and then you benefit one of your local bookstores. Yeah, because both of us are authors, uh, you got listening out there, uh, a book that sells on Amazon, we might get like a dollar from, and a book that sells from a bookstore, we might get 250 or $3 from. It's a, it makes a big difference. Yeah. 
And plus you're helping someone else, you know, a local small business, if you order through a, a bookstore that, you know, exactly. Thanks a ton for this. Uh, I, we could probably talk for an entire another hour and I may, <laughs> I may or may not bring you on again this season for a different, you know, much more directed topic because there's just, I can't stress enough to people listening to this. Marissa, Marissa McClellan is the Sam Thayer of canning. And by that, I mean, there is no better forager in America than Sam Thayer. And to my, and at least in my opinion, there is no better individual source of canning information than Marissa. So. Well, thank you. I'm really honored by that. Thank you so much for having me on. And anytime you want me to come back, I'm, I'll be here. That is our show this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As usual, I can be found on social media at Instagram. I am at Hunt Gather Cook. You can find me on my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You will find that at huntgathercook.com. Have a good week. Go out there, do something fun, pickle something, preserve something, bring something home to enjoy later. Again, I'm your host, Hank Shaw. Thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you soon.